0: Deep dive design process of talking to people profoundly changed me as an architect and us as an architectural firm.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tete A Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Carolyn Francis, and today we have another installment in our series of digital remote interviews in collaboration with Plat Journal. We have with us Deborah Burke, partner at Deborah Burke Partners and Dean of the Yale School of Architecture. Deborah Burke Partners is a New York-based practice with a range of expertise in institutional, residential, and commercial architecture. Thank you for joining us today to talk about your work. My pleasure. All right, let's get started. As an architect that has an interest in adaptive reuse, you are often tasked with a dual job of pleasing the client by transforming and redefining function within the environment, as well as preserving moments from the building's past life. When there are so many voices in a project,
0: how do you prioritize and listen to everyone's opinion? That's a great question, because there are two ideas. One is to meet the client's need. And the other is to bring an old building back to life. And we try to bring buildings back to life in a combination of reverently, I would say, or irreverently, usually somewhere between the two. So I'd call reverently, which we don't do all that often, you know, a George Washington slept here kind of building where it has such historic impact that you are reverent in How you might change it Um, and that's true if the building is done by an extraordinarily famous architect or had a meaningful historic event happen in it irreverently is a bit more fun you get to be more invasive more extravagant more excited i don't mean extravagant financially but sort of extravagant in your architectural gestures But the usual answer is that somewhere between the two. So you might have an irreverent moment, you know, where you put in a big new glass entrance against a 19th century building because you wouldn't ever want to imitate the 19th century masterpiece. You want to make something clearly of the 21st century And I think people find that adapted buildings are engaging and inviting. People look for what's old and what's new and what the changes are. And I think those qualities of what's old and what's new in a community, or it's always, of course, environmentally sound to save an old building when you can, um, tend to align with our clients' missions. We do a lot of work with artists. like at 122CC, which is an old New York City public school that's now an art center, so you see some of the old classrooms the giant windows that used to let in natural air and lots of daylight become perfect artist studios so that's seeing old against the new and taking the best out of both and in a lot of our 21c museum hotels whether it's taking a car manufacturing facility and turning it into a a hotel or old warehouses in Louisville Kentucky and turning them into a hotel You take the great thing of the old building and you combine it with what the new use really needs. And Kaplui, you have a great thing that's better than either would have been separately.
1: Great. So kind of building off of that last question, in some cases, the building's past role in the community demands a reevaluation as well. So like in the case of the women's building, developing this concept seemed to require a psychological change in the space. So how does the use of material interventions begin to change the negatively connotated immaterial qualities that might still be present?
0: That's a great question. Of course, the women's building was a profoundly complex, rich storyline to a building's history. Um, The women's building, for those who don't know, was a design competition here in New York for a building that had served most recently as a women's prison in Manhattan, believe it or not. Most people didn't even know it was there. And it was a women's prison for a fairly long time. But before it was a women's prison, it was actually a YMCA for sailors. So when the New York Harbor was an active port on the Manhattan side, sailors would stay in this building. And it was designed by Shreve Lamb and Harmon, the architects of the Empire State Building. So it had an architecture pedigree that was in its early days, let's say positive. And the repetitive small rooms were for sailors on land leave. You can imagine a scene from a black and white movie, getting off the ship and partying in New York and staying at the little uh, YMCA on the waterfront. Of course that history turned very, very dark when the port really moved over to New Jersey and Brooklyn and the building was reused as a women's prison and it became horrific. And the big windows were replaced by much smaller windows. And the doors were replaced with steel doors with tiny little slots in them into which you would slide a meal. Uh, Rooms that had held one person had bunk beds two and three levels high. Festive places, the swimming pool, the barber shop were turned into, uh, you know, rooms of detention. So the building developed a very dark history. But one of the things we did in the design process was to meet with formerly incarcerated women who had been in this prison, to talk to them about their experiences, to let them be heard, and to know that they were being heard as part of the design process, and to find out from them what pieces of the building were meaningful and needed to be preserved to tell the story, what portions of the building were so horrific and horrible in their memories that those should be destroyed so that nobody should have to see that? And then to figure out how to tell the story of what had happened there previously in the context of a new and forward looking and optimistic and generous and sharing community focused building. One of the questions you asked is, you know, what are the material interventions that one makes. So the women who had been incarcerated encouraged us to not only save a cell, but actually a piece of hallway so that there were cells on both sides, so that you would understand not just what it was like to be in the room, but what it was like to walk down a double loaded corridor of, of cells. Because that path, you know, from the dining hall back to the room or to the warden and back to your room had been so powerful in their memories and so negative that they wanted people to understand what that spatial experience had been like. But then elsewhere in the building, it mattered to us a lot to, it was a fairly low ceiling building in a lot of places because it was just floor after floor after floor of small rooms, Um, it mattered to us a lot in its new program, which was a center for NGOs and foundations and organizations that served the causes of girls and women around the world, that we have gracious, light-filled, double-height spaces where people could gather, where you could have a lecture or a party or an event. So we took away parts of the old building to make spaces that told the story of the new organization. And we also saved parts of the building that told the earlier story. So there had been a swimming pool for the sailors to use, and there had been a game room for the sailors to use, and there had been a chapel, which not only the sailors used, but also the women when they were imprisoned. One of the places that had a, I don't wanna say positive, but at least um, somewhat restorative quality to it was the chapel. So those spaces were then. Saved in effect and restored now. As you may know, this got all the way through deep into construction documents when the project was uh, suspended. So this has not been built. But I have to say, the deep dive design process of talking to people who had had these experiences there profoundly changed me as an architect and us as an architectural firm. I mean, we've always been inclusive, we've always listened, but. This was experiencing and hearing about people's lives in a way one typically doesn't on an architecture project, and it was educational for us and has changed how we approach projects or enhanced how we approach projects. Wow, that's amazing.
1: To kind of continue along the route of listening and current events, in this current time of unpacking the generational trauma inflicted by institutionalized and systemic racism You know, I think many architects have kind of been coming to terms with the profound effect of the built environment and perpetuating a purposely flawed system. So in light of this, what have you learned, particularly in projects where you and your team have, again, collaborated with activists and community leaders about how to ensure an equitable input in the design process?
0: Well, it's interesting that that you're asking that question right after we were talking about the women's building, because, of course, that was... The perfect example of listening to a community uh, formerly incarcerated women, most of whom were African-American or women of color. This happened before the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter um, social activism that we're experiencing right now, and which is so important and so necessary. But it's a piece of it. You know, these women had not been listened to and their feelings about the spatial and architectural characteristics and most immediately of the prison they had been in, but then beyond that to the neighborhoods where they were raising their children, was an important part of what we learned. So I think what we as architects are learning, and I don't just mean me, I mean all of us uh, in schools and practice, those who are policy makers as opposed to practitioners, included everybody in the built environment World, of which architecture is only a piece, are learning how to listen and to really listen, not just show up at one meeting and say, "Okay, we got to Tuteloo," but that in fact listening is a an iterative and reiterative part of a design process. You hear what people say. You see how you can accommodate it in your design. You have people who might not all agree. You know, it's not like everybody's necessarily saying the same thing. So even when you can't give everybody everything they've asked for, if you uh, have listened and can bring back to them where you have accommodated them and where because of budget or the needs of others or the overlapping needs, more people can be accommodated or more ideas uh, can more expansively be accommodated. People so appreciate knowing that they've been listened to. And that happened, for instance, for us on our uh, project 122CC, which I mentioned earlier, this uh, former New York City public school built in the 19th century, big high windows, as I said, you know, sort of right out of old films of New York public school, had numerous clients theater organizations, including Mabu Minds and Performance Space, uh, fine arts organizations, including Painting Space, which provides studios, affordable studio space to artists, primarily painters, but also uh, an an aid center for people in the community in that immediate neighborhood. Previously, these groups had occupied the building in a non-cooperative way. They were... Staking out their own territory and thinking, if you get five more square feet, that means I have five fewer square feet. And what we learned and helped them understand through the design process was that if they could together figure out what things they could share and then what things, because of their different programs, it was impossible to share. We got a lot of mileage out of the shared stuff that allowed each uh, organization in the end to have more dedicated square footage to themselves because of the things they could agree were shareable. So the design process itself became community building. The organizations were no longer kind of warring with each other. They were using the building together in in a more celebratory and collaborative way. So that too was bringing in different communities, And also saying to the neighborhood in which the building sits, this is part of your past. It's been a public school and an arts center, and now a better supported by the city arts center and community center. It's here for you as well. And it's a changing community, an old immigrant community with a new artsy hipster community. I think buildings, when done well, whether adaptive reuse or new structures, actually can help the process of bringing people together. We're mostly familiar with stories where construction or the permission process to build something drives communities apart. I think the happy lesson for architects, engineers, planners, landscape architects, uh, policymakers, is that the other thing can also happen, which is that good architecture and good buildings can actually bring people together.
1: Definitely. Well, to bring it more into the academic sphere, obviously these conversations are happening across the country and a shift in these conversations surrounding race, equality, equity, and so on. There also seems to be a shift in architectural education that's forthcoming as well. So how do you think architecture students can embrace the design of thoughtful and equitable environments, both in their studio projects and within their communities?
0: Well, I think there are a number of parts of the answer to that. You know, where do students get to do that part is, of course, how they're taught. And I think the model of the, I'll call it the dictatorial studio model, um, no longer works. That the voices of students need to be listened to and their personal experiences, where they come from, what world they know uh need to be accommodated in design teaching that isn't to say that there isn't a lot of design that an experienced architect can share with a student but uh, the terms and methodology are definitely changing again to more uh more listening and more respect i think one of the other aspects is that in creating the program for a studio project One wants to be both prescriptive in some ways, but also non-prescriptive. And I'm going to say that going back to being a practitioner, and I've always been a practitioner as well as always been a teacher. So we're doing a project now at Princeton. The college part of Princeton University is expanding. And part of our discussions with Princeton and our advice to them, with which they agree, is that uh, we don't want every space in, in the building to be Prescriptive. I mean, there are rooms where you sleep, and there are rooms, uh, you know, where food is served. Those have certain requirements. But the idea that here goes a ping pong table and only a ping pong table, and you have to get a pass to get a ping pong paddle—that's not what life is like anymore. And there are spaces where you and I could both be sitting separately on our laptops, or you and I could be working together on a, maybe a script that we're writing. Or that somebody else could be playing a musical instrument all spaces should be spaces that anybody can walk into and not feel trapped so no cul-de-sacs no places where you walk in and you go oh my gosh I don't really want to be in this room so understanding that the non-prescriptive is actually the thing that allows for the greatest interpretation and creativity is something that I've learned as an architect that that I am suggesting to faculty also needs to be brought to the studio. Let's see where the invention is, not the rules.
1: Well, that's it for me. I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. For more on Deborah Burke Partners, please visit their website at dburke.com. And if you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases as a part of our collaborative series with Plat Journal. I'm your host, Carolyn Francis, and this has been Ted Ted.